For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. A Profile of the Grumbler, Part 3. So, church family, over the past two weeks, we have been discussing uh, Paul's imperative from Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, and we've been looking at the various characteristics of the grumbler or the complainer. Paul says, do all things without complaining, without disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So in considering that subject and considering the profile of the grumbler, what have we gathered so far from our consideration together? First, in our consideration of the meaning of the word, we've discussed what complaining or grumbling is. For its meaning, for the meaning of any word, uh, we're to look to the Bible for the use of that term in its context. That's how we, would de- how we would define terms. If you want to define a term, you look to the Bible and you look for the use of that term in its context. Complaining or grumbling has to do with an expression of dissatisfaction. Complaining or grumbling has to do with an expression of displeasure, your displeasure. The word describes a basic, sinful heart attitude, and the outward expression of that sinful heart attitude in your conversation or in your conduct. That's what grumbling or complaining is. The grumbler is displeased. He's dissatisfied and he expresses, he sinfully expresses, expresses that displeasure in his thoughts, words, or actions. He grumbles and complains. Second, grumbling and complaining is a poison. It is a contagion and it pollutes both inwardly and outwardly. Now it pollutes inwardly. Jeremiah Burroughs described complaining as the most repulsive state of being. It is repulsive. Uh, No one wants to hang around with a grumbler, a complainer all the time. It's repulsive, the most repulsive. It's repulsive to your own person to be a grumbler or a complainer. Jeremiah Burroughs says, as contentment reveals much grace in the soul, strong grace, beautiful grace. That's what contentment reveals. So murmuring reveals corruption, strong corruption, vile corruption in the heart. Complaining, grumbling is the noxious fruit of a self-interested or self-absorbed pride. It is faithless. It is thankless. It is discontent, unloving, covetous. It is condemnable. Jude describes grumblers and complainers as those who walk according to their own lusts. They walk according to their own appetites. And so they grumble and they complain. These describe the sinful heart attitude that is the bitter spring from which grumbling and complaining flows. Faithless, thankless, discontent, unloving, covetous, prideful, right? Sinclair Ferguson said, a complaining or an arguing spirit is an expression of ingratitude. It's an expression of ingratitude toward God's providence and a spirit of lovelessness and pride toward others. It is a denial of grace. It is working against your salvation rather than working for your salvation or working salvation out in every aspect of your lives. The grumbler exhibits a critical spirit rather than a humble spirit. Jerry Bridges describes them as elevating their own opinions to the level of biblical convictions and their own convictions to the level of biblical truth, eventually twisting the truth in order to justify their complaints. They will eventually find themselves playing judge over their brothers or sisters, grasping and claiming for themselves a role that God has reserved for himself alone. Inwardly, complaining is a leaven. Left unchecked, that leaven will leaven the whole lump. It is an infection of the heart. It is an infection of the mind that becomes habitual. It becomes pervasive. Now, outwardly, outwardly, the word for grumbling is most frequently used with a preposition 
that means over or against. Someone grumbles against their brother. Someone grumbles or complains over someone else. It uses that preposition to describe the sin. The grumbler and complainer places himself or herself over or against their brother. Ultimately, they place themselves over or against God's own providence in their circumstances. So outwardly then, grumbling is an assault against someone. It is an assault or an attack against something. Ultimately, it is an assault against the sovereignty, against the goodness, against the omnipotent providence of Almighty God. Exodus chapter 16, verse two, the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against. It's a word that means over, against or over Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16, verse seven, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord for he hears your complaints against or over the Lord. Exodus chapter 16, verse eight, these are just rapid fire, these texts about complaining with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Exodus 16, verse eight, the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Asked Moses and Aaron, your complaints are not against or over us, but against the Lord. That preposition, clarifying or defining, if you will, the sin against another. The grumbler places himself over his brother, over another, ultimately over God himself. Bridges describes them as playing God over their brother. Playing God toward their fellow believers in Jesus Christ. He says, that's what we're doing when we judge or when we complain against others whose preferences and practices are different from our own. We are arrogating to ourselves a role that God has reserved for himself. And in grumbling and complaining, we play God. Outwardly, outwardly, the grumbler becomes a judgmental fault finder. Having justified himself as righteous, he will announce his own righteousness against the perceived unrighteousness of another. And he does that in the form of gossip, slander, scoffing, tail-bearing, backbiting, divisiveness, discord, strife, contention. Outwardly, complaining is a poisonous contagion, a leaven that will leaven the whole lump. A third, this is important. I want us to see this this morning. At the heart of grumbling and complaining is an imputation of injustice. At the heart of complaining and grumbling is an imputation of injustice. Now think with me about this for a moment, that statement, okay? The complainer or the grumbler has a claim. He has a claim. They have a claim about the weather, right? What they want it to be. They have a claim about how they should be treated. They think they should be treated better. They have a claim about how they should feel. They have a claim. They have an expectation. They have a standard. And they have a standard against or over another. Against or over God. They have an expectation that they hold against another. The children of Israel in the wilderness had a claim. We saw that last week, didn't we? They were the elect people of God. They were delivered by God out of Egypt, brought into covenant with him in the wilderness. They were promised land, seed, and blessing. God had promised them, them, promised it to them. They had a claim. They began to feel as though they were entitled to their claim. And their claim in the wilderness was that it should all be done for them without difficulty or without effort. That was the claim in their mind and in their heart. We're entitled. We're the covenant people of God. We've been given the law, right? Whatever the case may be, they had a claim. They had an expectation. They had a standard that they expected that God would meet. They expected that others would meet. And they began to think that they were entitled to that. All should be done for us without any difficulty, without any effort. Everything should be done for us the way that we think it should be done, right? Their claim is entirely subjective, isn't it? There's no basis for that claim. It's a claim based upon their own opinion. It's a claim based upon their own sense, their own standard, their own expectation of what they think should happen. And it's an ignorant claim, isn't it? It's not a biblical claim. It's a short-sighted claim. They don't don't see how God intends to do them good through the difficulties that they face. They don't see how God intends to bless them through the trials that they endure. 
It's a short-sighted claim and it's a self-willed claim. It's a self-absorbed claim. It's a self-righteous claim. And it's a claim that they hold over God or against another. At the end of the day, it was characterized in the Bible as a faithless claim, as an unbelieving claim. They were essentially saying either that God will not, or they were saying that God cannot do what we're asking him to do. But it was obviously a sinful claim nonetheless. Now with that claim, with that claim, the people involuntarily subject Moses and Aaron to their way of thinking. They impose upon Moses and Aaron their own standard, their own expectation. They have a claim. When they should have submitted themselves to Moses and Aaron as God's appointed leadership over them for their good, they had a claim against, they held an expectation against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They subjected Moses and Aaron to their own way of thinking. With that claim, the people brazenly subjected God himself to their way of thinking. When they should have trusted God in the wilderness, when they should have waited on God in their circumstances, when they knew that God would provide for them as he had already done so generously, so graciously before. When their claim is not met, when their standard is violated, when their expectation is not satisfied, they impute injustice and they complain and they grumble. At the heart of grumbling and complaining is an imputation of injustice. That's what complaining is. They complain that an injustice has been done against them. No injustice has been done against them. Right? We complain about the weather. No injustice has been done to you. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. No, no injustice has been done to you, right? We complain when we perceive that an injustice has been done toward us and they scorn the one who has done to them such injustice. That's what grumbling and complaining is. It's scornful. Ultimately, they scorn God. They make a brother or they make God himself out to be an adversary. That is why complaining is such a grievous sin. It is a grievous sin because ultimately it makes God your adversary. Ultimately, it makes your brother, the one for whom God died, it makes him out to be your adversary. That's why it receives such a harsh condemnation in scripture. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we make claims against others, don't we? If you're going to be honest with yourself, you and I, we make claims against others in the same way. We have expectations that go unmet. We have standards that other people don't live up to. We make claims against our circumstances, which are claims against God. They're not claims against chance. Right? They're claims against God. And we do it often. We do it often. This, this sin is pervasive. It is pervasive. If you want a day focused upon all the ways in which you sin with grumbling and complaining, we would find that we do it all the time, all the time. Grumbling and complaining when our claims are not satisfied, when our expectations are not met, as though I deserve all of my claims to be satisfied. And if all my claims were satisfied, I'd be a monster. God knows what's good for me. And God has ordained what is good for me, having withheld from me nothing that is good, which includes all the difficulties and the adversities that I face. God does that for our good. Let me give you an example of how you can see this working out in practice. Let me give you an example. You have a claim. You have a claim on that guy bagging groceries at the grocery store. That guy bagging groceries at the grocery store, put the loaf of bread at the bottom of the bag under a gallon of milk. And you have a claim. Your expectation is not being met. Not being met. Who does that? Who puts bread at the bottom of the bag under a gallon of milk? So when your expectation, when your expectation for proper bread placement does not, is not met, when that standard is violated, you don't respond with righteousness. There, there are many ways in which you could respond to that circumstance with righteousness, aren't there? You have several different op options available to you from the Bible that would teach you, instruct you as to how you should respond in that circumstance without sinful grumbling and complaining. You have opportunities 
to act as a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ in that circumstance. And you can't use the Southern, bless your heart. That's, that's it's still the same, right? Speaking only that which is good for his edification. That's what Ephesians 4 would tell us to do. Speak only that which is necessary for his edification. But you don't do that, right? Rather, you let corrupting or decaying or polluting words flow from that unruly member in your mouth and you grumble and you complain against him. You grumble and complain. You go home. You tell your husband all about it. (laughs) Now you've slandered him. Now you've slandered him. You submit a public Google review. (laughs) No one else needs to go to this store. They put bread. They always put bread on the bottom of the bag under a gallon of milk. One star. If I could have given them zero stars, I would have given them zero stars, right? Now you've slandered again. You've slandered again. But it's true. He put the bread at the bottom of the bag. Now you're self-justifying your self-righteous judgment, your self-righteous prideful claim, your slandering. You're seeking to damage his reputation. Not only his reputation, now you're trying to damage the reputation of the store, right? They always. He should know better. He should know better than to put the bread at the bottom of the bag. Others should know about this so they don't go to this place and have their bread squashed. Now you're impugning his character. You're impugning his intelligence. You're impugning his work ethic. You do this with others. It's sin in your heart. You're making a a claim. You're grumbling and complaining, seeking to enforce an unjust expectation. And when you do this with others, you're doing this with others to seek sinful advantage over that person or over that circumstance. To pad your advantage, you exaggerate, which is code for lying. The bread was ruined. It was completely unusable, right? I was going to serve that bread at a homeless shelter and now I can't, I can't go to the homeless shelter and serve that, that bread. That bagger at the grocery store hates homeless people. He hates them because he crushed my bread under a gallon of milk. Meanwhile, meanwhile, most everyone you complain to loves the tasty trifle. They love the tasty trifle, and so they receive it. They receive it. Now the contagion has spread to them. You never heard, hear, uh, never believe what I heard happened at that store, that grocery bagger up there. Unbeknownst to the grocery store bagger, he's now forever a bread-crushing, homeless-hating monster. Right? Rather than responding with righteousness... Now you go to his boss and you complain and you grumble. You're not concerned for a minute about what it might do to him if he lost his job. And when you go to his boss and you complain and you grumble, after having already complained and grumbled to others about it, you find out that he's an exemplary employee. He's exemplary, but he's human. He's just come back to work after losing his mom. He hasn't been himself. He's not thinking. And you feel absolutely terrible about it. Why? Why? I thought that all that fuming, all that grumbling, all that complaining was justified. It was justified. He should have never put the bread under the milk. It was not. None of that was justified. You were the one all along committing the injustice. And with that circumstance, that conversation with his boss, you were given one small opportunity at that moment to see, to realize just what an unjust judge you really are. You had one opportunity among countless times that you've complained, countless times that you've grumbled. You had one opportunity to see just what an unjust judge you really are. You thought you were doing all grocery store shoppers a great service by exposing that lousy grocery bagger. Jesus said they will kill you thinking they, they do God's service, Right? You thought you were doing all grocery store shoppers a service, but how do you think that's going to go in the day of judgment? When the secrets of your own heart, when your own hypocrisy, your own unjust claims, your own expectations, your own standards are revealed and exposed for what they are. When it's not the grocery store bagger, but it's your brother 
whom you've complained about, the one for whom Christ died. When it's not the grocery store bagger, but when it's your elders, gifts to the church that you're commanded by God to submit to, when it's your church, the Lord's body, his own people, that body that you're to love sacrificially, that you're to esteem more than yourself, that body that you're to sacrificially serve, how's it going to go for you when those are the ones you're grumbling and complaining against? Who are you to grumble and complain against your brother? James would ask. Who are you to grumble against another's servant? Paul would ask. When your expectation has not been met, when your standard has been violated, you are making a self-willed claim. You are imputing injustice. Do you see? You're imputing injustice. Let me give you an example of this from the Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is no quote-unquote small or quote-unquote respectable sin. It is a disgusting sin. And we need to dig it out by the roots. John chapter 6. Now last week, we considered the example of the Israelites grumbling against God in the wilderness. The Israelites have gained a reputation as grumblers and complainers. Uh, This became, frankly, part of what it meant to be Jewish. Uh, There's a parallel account of this the the Israelites grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. There's a parallel account of this in John chapter six. In John chapter six, the Lord Jesus Christ is preaching in Galilee. He's preaching to a bunch of Galileans, uh, to a large multitude of Galileans, about 5,000 men, not including women and children. A bunch of people gathered together out in the Judean or out in the Galilean wilderness. About 5,000 men, not including women and children. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, these people listening to Jesus preach out there, didn't have anything to eat. They didn't have anything to eat. And Jesus Christ fed them with bread out of heaven, as it were. Fed them miraculously with bread, as it were, out of heaven. Andrew finds this young boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. And Jesus, with that, five barley loaves and two small fish, he feeds the entire multitude and they have 12 baskets of fragments left over. No mystery to those numbers that are being used there, right? They were about to take him by force with this and make him king because they wanted to eat. (laughs) So Jesus then goes, he sort of escapes from them, goes to the other side of the sea. There's this scene where Jesus walks on the water. Um, He goes to the other side of the sea and the people follow him. They follow him. Verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs or because you want eternal life or because you have the words of eternal life, because you're the Messiah, the Christ. You seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the son of man will give you because God the father has set his seal on him. So like the Israelites in the wilderness, these Galileans have their priorities wrong. They've got their priorities wrong. They would follow the law as long as he did what they wanted him to do. Give us bread, Lord, we'll follow you. We'll follow you around the sea. Give us something to eat. They've got their priorities all mixed up. Meet our expectations, Jesus, and we'll have no reason to grumble or complain against you. Do you see? They have an expectation. They've got a claim. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, verse 32, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus Christ himself. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is what you need. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Sounds very pious. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus Christ is speaking of spiritual things, things that are far more important than the bread which merely satisfies the appetite. Do you see? Far more important. Look at verse 41. 
The Jews then, hearing this, they complained about him. That's a different preposition being used there. Complaining is always over or against, but they didn't complain to him. No, they complained about him. That's where the word murmuring comes from. It's this talking behind the back, talking under the breath. It says, can't really make it out all the time. What you hear, but you hear the, you know, you murmur. They were murmuring. They complained about him because verse 41, he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Now, what is that? That's called envy. That's called envy. That's called pride. He's a nobody. Who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is? He's not entitled. We're entitled. (laughs) Envy. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus is going to continue to add to their angst in verse 53. Verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, this would have been a statement that required faith on their part. They they needed to have sought understanding. They needed to have humbled themselves to understand what Jesus Christ was saying. But they were not humbling themselves. They had an expectation on their mind. They had a claim on their mind. Jesus Christ wasn't meeting it. Verse 60, therefore... Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a heart, this is a scleros. It's where we get our word sclerosis from. This is a hard to get through statement. This is a difficult saying. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, they grumbled about this, his disciples He said to them, does this offend you? Now, here's the point. They thought the statement was scleros. They thought it was hard. It would have required that they accept the statement with faith rather than with unbelief. They needed to have humbled themselves and trusted him. However, through this entire interaction, they don't humble themselves. They conduct themselves just like the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. See how this is a parallel account? They're doing exactly what Israel did in the wilderness. They complain. Now, in their own heart and mind, not against God the Father, but against God the Son, against the Lord Jesus Christ. They measure Jesus Christ by their own expectations. They measure. Can you see how they're doing that? They measure Jesus Christ by their own standards. They measure his teaching. They measure his words by their own expectations, by their own standards, by their own claim. They measure him on the basis of their own expectations. And then they criticize him when he doesn't match up, when he doesn't meet it. They grumble and they complain about him, certainly grumbling and complaining over him. It's how they gain power, if you will, over him. They measure him by their own standard. They express their dissatisfaction with him. They criticize his teaching. And just like Israel in the desert, with the same attitude, the same heart attitude expressed by that generation in the wilderness, this group of so-called disciples divides from him. They go and they follow him no more. It would seem that this is one of the reasons that Jesus begins referring to this group of Galileans as Jews. It's interesting. He begins to call them Yudui, Jews. They have manifest a heart attitude that had become characteristic of the Jewish people. The Lord says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. He equates their complaining, their grumbling, their criticisms with unbelief, with a lack of faith. There was no injustice done to them, was there? There's no injustice done to them. He didn't meet their expectations. And so they grumbled. They complained. They wanted to take him by force, make him king. This guy needs to provide us food to eat always. He didn't meet meet their expectations. What about cases of real injustice? What about cases of actual injustice? Actual injustice like we have experienced as a church recently right? Cases of actual injustice. There is a righteous way to respond 
to real unrighteousness. There is a righteous way to respond to real injustice. There are many times, many, many, many times when no injustice has been done to you. You need to think about that when you get ready to grumble and complain. Has any injustice been done to you? Your brother has committed no injustice against you. The the decision simply didn't go your way. The circumstance didn't turn out the way that you hoped that it would. Your sister has a preference that is different from your own. Your elders have reasons that you're not aware of, right? You weren't, there was no injustice done to you, and yet you are making an unjust claim over or against your brothers. You're attempting to enforce an unjust expectation or an unjust standard against your brothers. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. However, that being said, there are circumstances, aren't there, in which an actual injustice has been done. Circumstances in which you are righteously offended. Circumstances in which you are righteously indignant. You're angry. There is a righteous way to direct that emotion in a way that honors God. There is a way to direct that emotion, those feelings, in a way that keeps you from the path of sin, serious sin. We cannot express righteous displeasure in unrighteous ways. We cannot allow our emotions to be, expre- to be expressed Excuse me, in unedifying words against one another. We have to give them to God in prayer. We can't do that over or against our brother. We have to go to God in prayer. He is the one who hears our cries for justice. He is the one who can actually answer those cries in righteousness. When our anguish is raised to him in prayer, we are entrusting ourselves. We are entrusting our circumstances to him. We are expressing faith in his sovereign care. We are expressing faith, trust, dependence upon his sovereign goodness, knowing that he hears us, knowing that he is working all things together for our good. Our laments we trust, we know they're heard. They're heard by God. They're heard with immeasurable love. They're heard with pity. They're heard with grace. They're heard with mercy. They are regarded with infinite wisdom and they're met with a perfect providence. We can trust God rather than grumbling or complaining. Look with me at Psalm 7. Let's look at an an example of this from scripture. Psalm 7. We can trust God rather than grumbling and complaining. Psalm 7 The heading at the top of this psalm says, a meditation of David. David was thinking and praying about these things, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And we don't know who Cush was, but apparently Cush was a Benjamite who slandered David. He spoke words against David. And David, rather than responding with reviling or words of his own, responding with reviling, responding with grumbling and complaining against another person. He goes to God with a prayer for justice. He goes to God with it. This is what we should do. Notice he does not act as his own judge. He does not plead his case with others so that others may become judge with him. Instead, he acknowledges God as judge. And not only Cush the Benjamites judge, but his judge as well. He acknowledges that God will judge him and he submits himself willfully to God's judgment. David understands that he's prone to unjust judgment, but God never is. David is subjecting himself. He's subjecting, submitting his circumstance, circumstances to the just judgment of God. There is no personal vendetta here. David acts with humility. David places himself as it were alongside his oppressor, before the bar of God's judgment. It's as though they're both standing there side by side before the bar of God's judgment and David calls God to render justice, to render a judgment, both subject to God's judgment rather than subjecting themselves to the judgment of another. Now, first notice, David commends himself to God's sovereign care. He commends himself in this to God. Verse one, O Lord, my God, in you, I put my trust. Notice he's not making his complaint or taking his complaint, taking his case to another. In you, I put my trust. Save me from all those, plural, not just Cush. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces when there is none to deliver. Sounds messy, doesn't it? Apparently Cush slandered David 
and then stirred up a mob against him. And apparently it was messy. They are going to tear him like a lion, rending him in pieces. There's none when there is none to deliver. Save from all those, plural, who persecute me and deliver me, David prays. Cush has been offended and he knew who to blame for his offense. He gave vent to his complaints and he gained a following for himself against David. In this matter, David expresses a clear conscience, but he knows that this doesn't absolve him from guilt. He gladly submits himself to God's own judgment. Look at verse three. Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if I am guilty of what Cush the Benjamite has accused me of, if I'm guilty, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, if I have plundered my enemy without cause, if I have taken anything from them, right? David is saying, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the earth. Lay my honor in the dust. Selah. In other words, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to meditate on that, right? David, this is a way that David pronounces or announces his innocence David essentially pronounces a curse against himself if he's guilty, right? If I've done this, then let the enemy pursue me, David says. Here's a way of, that David proclaims his innocence before God. God, you know, he submits himself under the bar of God's judgment, submits himself to God's determination, and he says, God, you know, you know my heart. You know me. You know my goings and my comings. You know me. You know I'm not guilty of what Cush has accused me of, right? Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. God knows. In other words, he's saying this before the eyes of God. God, if I've done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, right? neither, neither Paul nor David is claiming to be, claiming to be sinless. David is, is not saying, I am perfectly blameless in my life. No, David is saying, I'm not the cause of this enmity. And he knows that God sees everything. He knows that God looks upon the heart. He sees everything, including every inch of David's heart. Can you see, can you see how this heart attitude would protect you from grumbling? As soon as you go before God like that, there is a serious self-examination that has to take place. Before you sub submit yourself like that before God, you've got to humble yourself. Humble yourself. That would protect you from grumbling and complaining. You know you don't deserve any good. <laughs> Why will, Lamentations 3.39, Why will, how can a sinful man complain? A man complain for the punishment of his sins. How can a sinful man complain? This heart attitude would protect you from slander, would protect you from reviling, would protect you from scoffing. Truly going to God and subjecting yourself to his judgment and subjecting or submitting your circumstances to his judgment would protect you from that. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator said this, when we are conscious of God's searching judgment, rather than trying to enforce our own, right? when we are conscious of God's searching judgment, we take immense care with our prayer since we realize with a holy and healthy trembling that every nook and cranny of our being is exposed to the searching analysis of heaven. We take care. Now next, rather than taking matters into his own hands, rather than seeking his own justice, David places himself and he places his circumstance in God's hands and he seeks justice from God. Verse six. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift, God hates injustice, amen? God hates injustice. David prays, arise, Lord, in your indignation. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Vindicate me, David prays, in this matter with Cush the Benjamite. This is a righteous thing to pray in the face of injustice. When there's been real injustice, it's righteous to go before God and to make this claim. David acknowledges God's wisdom and God's desire, God's right to administer justice. And David acknowledges God's sovereignty in doing that. God will avenge. God will repay. David doesn't attempt to usurp God's authority by taking matters into his own hands. 
by judging the matter in the place of God, by acting as God over his brothers, his sisters, his church, etc. David is pleading with God to right the wrong, pleading with God to come to his aid, knowing that God is faithful to do it. God's going to do it and God's going to do it in his time. God will administer justice far better than you. Amen? David knows that God will administer justice far better than David. And he'll do so in his perfect timing. You and I are going to make a mess of things. That's what we're going to do. When we act in sinful, ungodly ways, when we grumble and complain, we make a mess of things. God is the one who sets all things right. David may have experienced injustice at the hands of Cush the Benjamite, but the injustice doesn't end with Cush the Benjamite. Look at verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. David moves on from Cush the Benjamite to the wickedness that is pervasive in this wicked world. All this wickedness that abounds. God said it right. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. Your own anguish under the heavy hand of injustice should stir up within you a prayer to God to deliver all his people, to vindicate not only you, but all his own against unrighteous injustice. For the sake of his own righteous name, we pray that God would do it. The persecuted people of God, the suffering people of God are to find their hope in him, their hope of deliverance in him. Verse 11, unlike you and I, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, despite the billboards, God is not mad. This must've been ripped out of the Bible when they put that billboard up. God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, if he does not return, repent of his sin, God will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow, makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Now this implies that if a man does repent, he's going to be spared that judgment. There's hope here. We can't be like Jonah. We can't sit on the hillside overlooking the city, hoping that they're going to be deprived of the same mercy that has been shown to us. We need to be praying for mercy to be shown, for God to spare. When God determines mercy, he asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? (laughs) We pray that God would determine mercy. But if God doesn't determine mercy, we pray that God would uphold his righteous name. Verse 14, behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble, brings forth falsehood. He made a pit, dug it out. He has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own crown. In other words, think with me now, God's judgment, verses 12 and 13, when he sharpens his sword, bends his bow, prepares instruments of death, looks like the potentially slow and even natural looking events of verses 14 and 15. In other words, the wicked man sins. Cush carefully lays out his trap for David, stirs up a mob against him. He digs out the pit. He's digging the hole. And then at some point, he quote unquote accidentally falls into the hole that he has dug for another. His trouble returns on his own head. Those results, those circumstances are not the results of natural causes, right? They're the result of supernatural causes. Behind the providence of verses 15 and 16, falling into that pit, which he's made, stands God, the God of verses 12 and 13, the one who has flaming arrows quenched in blood, right? He didn't fall into that ditch by accidental or natural causes. That's how God in his providence carries out his judgments, I read a story in a commentary on this text about the way in which an Eskimo uh, kills a wolf. The Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and he allows it to freeze. He continues to layer, add layers of animal blood to the blade until the blade is completely covered up, concealed. Then he puts the, the knife in the ground with the blade up, plants it, blade up in the ground. When the wolf catches scent, of the blood on the air, the wolf tracks it to the knife and he starts to lick. Tasting the frozen blood, he licks faster and faster, craving the blood, 
licks faster and faster until the blade begins to be exposed. By now, the wolf is frantically licking, craving the blood. And his craving is so intense that he doesn't notice the sting of the bare blade cutting his own tongue. Nor does he realize that he is beginning to satisfy his own craving for blood with his own blood. He continues to crave and he continues to lick his own blood until he's found dead the next day. Now, God's judgment often works the same way. That's how grumbling and complaining kill. That's how grumbling and complaining kills. The blood craving of the grumbler is, I have a claim. I will judge this matter. I have an expectation. I have a standard. I want justice for myself. I want to feed my pride. I am entitled. The blood craving of the grumbler is, I have a claim. While he laps at the blood of his brother, while he laps at the blood of his sister, his family, his elders, his church, his circumstances, a poor grocery bagger, ultimately at God himself, he doesn't realize that he's killing himself. And he falls into the ditch which he has made. The enemies of God's people justify their own craving to give vent to their hostility. The enemies of God's people justify their own craving, their lust for blood. The wolf is driven to it, to that craving, that lust for blood, that hostility, driven to it by fleshly appetites. But the savage wolf among the Lord's people is driven to it by the same lust. The grumbler is driven to it by the same fleshly lust. Grumbling and complaining isn't a fruit of the spirit. It's a fruit of the flesh. Jude describes them as sensual or fleshly persons who cause divisions. They grumble and they complain. David in Psalm 7, David has a legitimate case. He has a legitimate case, but he doesn't, take, he doesn't make that case in the court of public opinion the way that Cush obviously has. He doesn't do that. David takes his case before the judge of living and the dead. He humbles himself knowing that he himself is subject to God's righteous judgment and he trusts the Lord to act in righteousness. God is able to do it. He knows that the judge of all the earth will do right. And for that comfort in his time of need, David trusts the Lord and David offers praise to God. Verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Cries of anguish should always conclude with prayers of praise, amen? Our trials and difficulties should send us running to God. They should find us entrusting ourselves and all of our circumstances to him, the one who hates injustice with a perfect hatred. They should find us subjecting ourselves, submitting ourselves and all of our circumstances to his righteous judgments, filling our prayers with praise for his sovereign care in our time of need. That is the right way, brothers and sisters, to complain. That's the right way to offer our lament before God. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. We need a right heart, a humble heart before God, and we need to go to God with our grumbling, right? Go to God with our lament. Grumbling and complaining and disputing reveal a terrible condition in the heart. As Burroughs said, it is a repulsive state of being. No one wants to be around a complainer. Well, David was a man after God's own heart. It was the condition of David's heart that provided the spring from which this prayer is offered to God in Psalm 7. Humility kept him from grumbling against God. Humility sent him running to God. Faith kept him from taking matters into his own hands, acting unrighteously. Faith sent him seeking after God's judgment on the matter, seeking God's judgment against Cush, the Benjamite, trusting God to deal with the circumstance in God's own timing. Reminding ourselves again of Paul in Colossians chapter three, therefore, brothers and sisters, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, 
which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be grateful. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, help us to understand more fully the condemnable nature of this disgusting and wicked sin. And help us, Lord, to dig it out of our own hearts and minds. Pull it up by the roots, we pray, O God. And help us to be a grateful people, a loving people, a forgiving people, a kind people, a tender people, a merciful people. Help us to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Help us to serve one another in love with patience. Help us to esteem one another more highly than ourselves. Help us to be grateful for the gifts you have given others and ways that they serve us. Help us to avoid those wicked heart attitudes of self-reliance, self-entitlement, self-absorbed, self-righteous pride and hypocrisy. Lord, make of us a people worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Help us to meditate on these things, not to allow this understanding that you've given us pass in one ear and out the other. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. We may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For your glory, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all these things in his name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.